Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, Allah salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin Mubarak wasallam. Alhamdulillah, we are very much honored that we have a very respected guest visiting us tonight, inshaAllah, Shaykh Saad Qadri, who has spoken here on many occasions before. He is the Imam of Masjid al-Huda, located in Greenfield, Wisconsin, near Milwaukee. He completed his bachelor's degree in English and History at Northern Illinois University and his master's degree in education at DePaul University. Alhamdulillah, after completing his master's, he traveled overseas to Zambia and he completed his Alamiya degree and received license to teach traditional Islamic sciences. He also received authorizations in the spiritual development, the science of Tazkiyah. And since his young age from high school, he has been actively involved in local communities by teaching and speaking at various events and conferences, mashallah. And we're very honored to, that he is with us tonight. The topic is silence no more, hearing the voices of the oppressed. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa has said, help your brother, whether he is an oppressor or is oppressed. A man inquired, O Messenger of Allah, I understand why I would help him when he is oppressed, but how can I help him when he is an oppressor? How can we help the oppressors? Rasulullah said, you can keep him from committing oppression. Prevent him from oppression. This is the way of helping the dhalim. So uh, this is a very important, pertinent topic, inshallah. I don't want to take much of your time. I would like to give maximum time to our guests, inshallah. I will hand it over to Sheikh Saad to inshallah address us on this topic. Inshallah, let us make our intentions to pure for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And let us sit attention and focus. Alladheena yastami'oona al-qawla fayattabi'oona ahsana. Ulaika alladheena hadahum Allah wa ulaika hum ulul albab. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Alladheena yastami'oona al-qawl. Those who listen attentively to the talks of deen. And then they follow the beautiful advices given therein. Ulaika alladheena hadahum Allah. These are those whom Allah will guide. Wa ulaika hum ulul albab. They are the intelligent ones. So first condition is, they have to listen attentively. So inshallah, let us give our full attention to Shaykh Saad. Jazakumullah. Khair. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. <coughs> مبارك عليه كما يحب ربنا ويرضاه جل جلاله وعم نواله والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد قال الله سبحانه وتعالى في القرآن الكريم يا أيها الذين آمنوا كونوا قوامين للقسط شهداء لله قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم 
khairukum khairukum li ahli li ahlihi wa na khairukum li ahli faqala rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam as-salah as-salah wa ma malakat imanukum sadaqallahu alazim wa sadaqa rasuluhu an-nabiyyul karim wa nahnu ala dhalika min ash-shahidin min ash-shakirin alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin I'm very grateful for Darus Salam for hosting this topic. This is a topic that most masajid. Did you want a PowerPoint? Did you want a PowerPoint? No. Okay, I saw this up. Okay, keep it Okay, I was like, oh no, I must have missed that. Okay. This is a topic that most people would avoid. In fact, this is a topic that most people have avoided. And. It's a testimony to this institution that they took upon this topic in a day and age when criticism is so easily placed upon people who are willing to be on the edge. I want to begin by saying this is going to be a tough conversation. I have very close family and very close friends, male and female alike, those younger than me and those older than me, students and colleagues and teachers who have been sexually abused. So I would like to think that I'm not speaking about this in some sort of bubble because this has been something that I've been dealing with for the majority of my life, although alhamdulillah it's never happened to me. So long as I can remember, there's always been someone around me who had been victimized by this. Secondly, I came from my parents' place. I went and I dropped off my kids. And uh, my mother asked if we could have dinner. So I sat with her and we had dinner together. And um, my eldest, Zaid, he's 11 years old, he came and he sat down. And apparently this past week, my wife had spoken to him about the shootings that had taken place, the school shootings. And so my sons, they both go to, or my two older sons, they both go to Madrasa for memorization of Quran at Ayafan with Qari Uthman Sharif. And so my wife was telling them that if someone does come, this doesn't happen, but if it does happen, make sure that you hide and make sure that you take cover. And so my son, he's almost a black belt. He'll be a black belt, inshallah, in a month. Both of them are almost, the two old ones are almost black belts. Anas is... Nothing. He's three months old. Um, so Zaid said, well, should I use my Taekwondo on him? And so my wife said, no, 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 no. What you do is you hide. So she told me later. And I said, no, this, you know, he's trained for a reason. Um, so then he brought it up in front of my mom. So I was saying, out of all the places you bring this up in front of my mom, already I'm an extremist to her. I'm a vegetarian, and I don't like doing this, and I don't like doing that, and it just, every time, I, every time I call them, they're probably like, now what? This <laughs> is something else. And so she, um, so Zaid said, Baba, Mama spoke to me about this, and um, I said, yeah, Zaid, she's right. It could happen, and if it does happen, you should, if you see something suspicious, just tell someone who's in charge. Don't take matters into your own hands. So he said, what if he comes in? Now what do I do? He said, won't, it be, won't this be a type of jihad? Won't I be shaheed? I said, you know, you could likely be shaheed. 
So what should I do? So I know what your mom has told you, but I'd be very proud if I know that my son died protecting others. And so he started crying. It was a very difficult conversation to have with an 11-year-old to say that, you know, an incident might happen. Now, everyone here is thinking, why would you have that conversation? This incident will never happen. Well, those of us from DeKalb, we know, I think it's been 11 years? 10 years. On February 14th, that there was a shooter where I used to go to college, and I was living there. And not only was there a shooter, but that shooter was a friend of mine. The shooter was a friend of mine. And the shooter actually used to come to my home for Arabic, because we used to be in the same Arabic class. He used to come to my home, and I used to tutor him and a few other classmates, and my wife would prepare food, and uh, they, she would leave, and they would come, and we'd have, cl- we'd have revision together, Takrar <laughs> with the university. Uh, and we would just review, because the, the teachers were brought in from overseas, and it was just difficult. So never would I have expected Steve to do something. No way. And never would he expect anything in DeKalb. See, DeKalb, those of you from DeKalb, you know, when 9-11 occurred, and that was my first year of college, I remember people saying the planes hit the Twin Towers. And then they began to say that we need to get away from the home student center because it's the tallest building in DeKalb. I think this masjid is taller than that building. But they were, they were genuinely concerned. Forget the Sears Tower or Willis Tower now in downtown. They said, maybe they'll fly it into the home student center in DeKalb. Thinking, really? We have nothing. We have corn, and we have nothing. But they were genuinely concerned. And so no one ever thought anything would happen in DeKalb. And lo and behold, we had a, a, a shooting. And I forgot how many passed away, how many were killed. But you know, no one ever thinks it's going to happen. So no one ever has these conversations. And because no one has these conversations, no one's prepared for it. When I was um, at my masjid, I was teaching, helping the, the Hibs class there a year and a half ago, we had a shooter uh, just, just a block or so north of us. And so we got a message saying that there's a shooter in the area. And no one in our, in our masjids ever practiced lockdown procedures. I happen to have worked in a school for, uh, schools for 10 years, so we did the lockdown procedure right away. But no one knew about anything. There was some discussion. Should we just take them out and usher them to their homes? Like, no, the shooter is a block away. Then within a certain mile radius, everything shuts down. You can't just go out. And so because these conversations are never had, we become victimized very easily. Remember when, my, when we moved? And yes, will they have tears? Yes, they will have tears. My son was crying. It's not easy to watch your son cry. And then I was like, Zay, don't think about it too much. You, I mean, you're bringing something up, so I'm responding. But don't overthink it. But I remember when we moved to Zambia, my wife and I sat down. We only had two children then. So we sat down, and Zaid was, how old was Zaid? Seven years old, and Uthman was four. And so we said, look, we're in a different country now. And we don't know the people here. We don't know anything about here. So I want you guys to remember the following. If anyone ever says anything to you, or does anything to you, or touches you inappropriately, especially between your navel and your knees, I don't care if they threaten to kill you if you say something. I don't care if they threaten to kill us if you, if, if you say something. You have to say something. And he looked at me in this strange way like, what, what, what would happen? And we're almost frightening him about, uh, uh, for being in Zambia. But then we said, this is for everywhere. And we just renewed that conversation a few months back with our kids. Said, we don't know if you remember this. We had this conversation. We want you to remember this. And Zaid said, I think I remember something like this. Uthman had no idea. He was four then. Now he's nine. But... These are conversations we have to have. 
And if anyone has read Sirah, we know the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't receive revelation and all of a sudden tell his family, you're all Muslim. Fatima who was the youngest, according to some of the historians, she was only four years old at that time. He had a conversation with her. He sat down and presented Islam to her. It was a serious conversation. It was a social departure from the norms that they grew up. Now, they didn't grow up as a family that worshipped idols. Hashanillah, of course not. But still, it was a departure from what they knew to be a general social tradition. And so, he, re- he presented it to all of his children. And his children subsequently accepted it. And so, we see within the sunnah of the Prophet them that he had conversations with people. When Abu Umair's bird passes away, he doesn't try to avoid the conversation of death. He doesn't sit and say, oh, you know, it bought, it bought the fire. Arabs would say that. But, you know, oh, don't worry, it's, it, it flew somewhere else. It's just sleeping, as many people would say. He actually posed the question to his, um, to, 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 the, uh, to the brother of Anas radiallahu anhu, Ya Abu Umair, ma fa'ala nughair. Oh, Abu Umair, what happened? What did this, what did this small bird do? What happened to it? Meaning the children weren't veiled from conversations, they were introduced to conversations. In fact, if you look at Umar radiallahu anhu, when his son Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhuma and his brother Zayd bin Khattab radiallahu anhu, they go in battle. And Zayd radiallahu anhu is made shaheed. And Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhuma, he comes back and when he comes to the door, there's an assumption that his father is going to celebrate his return. His father very sternly says, how dare you return your father, your, your uncle Shaheed, and you dare show your face? So he said, oh my father, I tried. I tried to become Shaheed. It was written for my uncle, it was not written for me. And then Umar radiallahu anhu, he used to, uh, he said, you know, you, um, about his brother, he preceded him in two ways. He became Muslim before him, and he gained Shahada before him. But you don't see with Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhu, the conversation was just hiding something. He, he, he made clear that, you know, death is a reality, and I would have loved to see you become Shaheed. When Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu's son for so long is not Muslim, becomes Muslim and now they come, they're having a conversation, they're smiling, all this time they lived apart, they come back together. Then his son says, oh my father, so many times I saw you in battle and you were in my, in, in my range for my arrow and I could have picked you off, but you're my father, so I let you go. So Abu Bakr radiallahu's face changes completely. And what does he say? He said, oh my son, if even one moment I saw you at the field, I would not have held back. Converse, real conversations that took place between the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and their children, between the Salaf al-Salihin. And this is something that we sometimes assume that if we hide it enough, it won't become an issue. But all that's happened is people remain silent, and with the silence brews this type of uh, anger and this type of resentment. And then it comes out once it gets bottled up and it's now, it can't be held anymore. So it just sort of overflows. And so this is a step. This is not the end solution. I'm going to apologize in advance. There are some people who may be sitting here that I may offend, and that's not my intention. I do not come here as an expert on this topic. I do not come here as an expert in mainly anything other than hopefully English. I just come here as someone who uh, is passionate about the subject and has had some experience and had to deal with it. And my wife happens to be, along with being an anima, she's a therapist as well. But there's... I, I, I might say things that people might be upset with. They, say, they might say, this is, not, this is not agreeable. This is distasteful. And that's fine. You're allowed to feel that way. 
And I encourage you to voice your constructive criticism to me and or the organizers so that future conversations on this topic can further be refined. Many of you don't understand the feedback that we received before this began. My wife was receiving text messages. I was receiving text messages. I know the teachers are receiving text messages. People began to speak about their conditions. Just yes, the day before yesterday, there's a, there's a brother who spoke to me about how he, he's in his 30s, how he was sexually abused when he was younger. Another person just brought up her, her situation just a few days before that, how after the passing uh, of her father, one of her family members came and you know, violated her. I mean, this is, it's a reality. People, these predators, they prey, EY, not AY, they prey upon these victims in the most vulnerable situations and circumstances. And a lot of these stories began to come out this week. And so this discussion conversation that we have will not be all-encompassing by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a start. And where I falter, it's my own fault. It's my own ignorance. It's my own arrogance. It's Shaitan's influence. And where things are right, then that's Allah's blessing. That's my teacher's effort, my parents' du'as. And we'll go forward from there. That's the idea. We'll go forward from there. <clears throat> There's so much I want to talk about today. I never take ex uh, excessive notes. I always usually have a small card with a few things written here and there. But this time, I, I really sat down and tried to put some effort into this so that I don't um, betray the, the, the right that the masjid has over me, nor that you have over me. <clears throat> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created human beings with needs and desires. And these needs and desires are many in number, and they all have a permissible outlet and an impermissible outlet. When a person turns to that which is permissible, something beautiful comes from it. This is in any avenue. And when something is turned to that's impermissible, then oftentimes harm comes from it and ugliness comes from it. Allah Ta'ala made multiple avenues because He is the most merciful. If He so wanted, He could have made the only thing that we have the right to do is worship and nothing else. And everything else would have been a test that we had no outlet to, to, to express and subsequently we would have been in a lot of difficulty. But Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَظْلِمُ Allah does not oppress mankind at all. Who, in fact, nas, rather mankind, who, what do they do? They oppress themselves. Your wrongdoing, your oppression is against, it's against ourselves. And so, sometimes when people say, why did Allah allow this? If we have time, I want to get into that topic. I want us to establish some premise when we begin this conversation. This conversation is going to take place under the umbrella of deen. So sometimes people say, well, the deen is antiquated, it's old, we can't utilize it. That's not true. The deen has been made in such a way that what was applicable 1400 years ago is still applicable today and will be applicable until the end of time. This is why no other prophet nor any other book will ever come after our Prophet and the Quran that we've been gifted. So for someone to say that this is antiquated and it won't fit, that's not true. 
but Allah Ta'ala allowed the details to be reinterpreted and understood in context of our society today. So many people will be shocked to to find that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala has established such a world that the things from which we suffer today existed 1400 years ago. The conversation of molestation and rape has actually occurred within hadith. We see in the Musannaf of Ibn Abi Shayba, Rahmatullahi Alayh, the Jami' of Imam Tirmidhi, Rahmatullahi Alayh, we see it in many various texts. Because these things do not just come only at the end of time. Yes, they might be magnified in some ways. But they occurred before and they were dealt with in a, uh, in a certain way. And that proved to be an example and a premise and a foundation of how we're going to move forward. Now, can we improve on certain things? Yes, there's certain things we can improve on. There is no doubt now that we have means of communication that did not exist in the past. Thus, we need to make people more aware of this reality and what our deen condones and permits and what it prohibits in ways that we might not have been able to do before. So we can, quote-unquote, improve in the way we relay the message, meaning that we have the ability to reach more people immediately at the, at the blink of an eye. In our deen, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Rasulullah he mentioned something very interesting. He said, help your brother. Help your brother. Unsuru akhak. Help your brother. Zaliman o mazluma. Be that individual, the oppressor, or the oppressed. And Mufti Sahib was just mentioning this. Now there's a shock value. Because people begin to under think, well, we know how to help someone who's oppressed. And this is how the Sahaba radiallahu anhum responded. But how do we help the oppressor? This is going to be a sticky topic that we get into tonight. Because sometimes victims say, I don't want help for the oppressed, uh, oppressor. The oppressor should be made to suffer. So one of the premises that we have to recognize is Allah Ta'ala is the most just. And He will take everything into account. But some of those things will not be taken into account in this world. And this is why we have the Day of Judgment. لا ظلم عليكم اليوم On the Day of Judgment, there will be no oppression. Any wrongdoing will be addressed, will be redressed to the extent, يَا لَيْتَنِي كُنْتُ turaba. This verse, if we look in the tafsir of it, we see the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that the goat or the ram that was hornless, that was attacked by the ram with horns, will now have to be held account. And what's the account? The one without horns will be given horns, the one with horns will have the horns taken away, and retribution will occur. Everything will have a set retribution on that day. Thus, sometimes we seek justice in this world, and as Muslims we aim to, excuse me, allow that to happen. However, we have a sharia under which we handle this. And subsequently, we know if something slips through the cracks, it's not permanent. Rather, it is waiting its time until the Day of Judgment. So these were just some, some premises I wanted to establish. The topic, silence no more, this topic is just so, there's so much, there's so many details behind this topic. Unfortunately, we live in a time, in a day and an age, where the oppressors have an upper hand in many fields, in many spheres. And the mistakes that Muslims sometimes make, I'm saying Muslims, talking about our community, 
is we take the lesson from the oppression that occurs outside of our community and we let it come into our community. And this is something the Prophet did not stand for. He did not allow an oppression that existed outside the community to be replicated within the community. I want to begin right away with the hadith that's in Jami' Tirmidhi. That it was narrated from, I'll just go into the hadith. In Jamia Tirmidhi, we see a very beautiful hadith of a woman. Why am I saying it's beautiful? I don't want to sound sick in any way over here. There was a woman who was in Medina Munawwara. And when she was in Medina Munawwara, a man came and he overcame her. He overcame her, so it refers to either he touched her inappropriately or what some of the scholars translate as being, he raped her. So when this woman was affected this way, she stood up. And when she stood up, she called for help. A group of men walked by her. They didn't do anything about it. Then a group, then the hadith mentions a group of Ansar, they came by. And when the group of Ansar, they came by, they listened to this woman. And when they listened to this woman, this narrated by Wa'il bin Hujr radiallahu anhu, they came to her and they they brought her to the Prophet ﷺ. When they brought her to the Prophet ﷺ, she said that that man did such and such to me. Now I want us to listen to this hadith very closely because there's so many lessons that we learn right away. Now that man did such and such to me. So the Prophet ﷺ said, he brought the man, she said, yes, this is him. Then they brought him to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, الَّذِي ظَنَّتْ أَنَّهُ وَقَعَ عَلَيْهَا فَأَتَوْهَا بِهِ فَقَالَتْ نَعَمْ هُوَ هَذَا This is the individual. So when he comes to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that man begins to get worried. He begins to get worried because now he's going to be held into account. So as this worry begins to come forth, another man comes up. And he says, Ya Rasulullah, Anna Sahibuha. I'm the one who did this. So a man was accused and he was brought forth. And when he was brought forth, the Prophet didn't believe the testimony of the woman. And when he, was being when he was being taken at that point, another Sahabi stood up and said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, leave him. It was me. It was me. So the Prophet ﷺ let that man go. Then he told the woman that there's nothing upon you. You have no sin with this. And in some narrations, he gave her the bride price or he gave her an amount of money. And then they stoned the man. Now, this hadith is a very beautiful hadith to look at because this is such a social commentary for us. Sometimes, the victim is not going to be listened to. The victim will not be heard. The victim will begin to speak 
and no one will listen to what the victim has to say. And this hadith does not justify it. Rather, we see from the best companions, the, muha- the sorry, the muhajirun, they weren't the ansar, the muhajirun, they got up. And when they heard it, they went to establish justice. Now the fact that one group heard it and didn't respond, and another group heard and did respond, we see the nature of human beings. Some human beings, they just want to avoid conflict. Maybe if they plug their ears, they close their eyes, they guard their tongue, that nothing will, be, nothing will happen around them. But there's another group that was extremely brave, who saw the violation that occurred, and the need of the woman at that point, and they did not hesitate. And this is the reality that we have today. That we, we are always going to have. Because we see the Sahaba as being a microcosm, and I'm sort of flattering us, but a microcosm of what exists today with us. Of course they were better than us. But th- those who, from the some Sahaba were people who made others laugh. Nu'ayman radiallahu anhu. And from our groups, there'll be brothers and sisters who make us laugh. There are individuals who are extremely great in business, Abdurrahman bin Awf radiallahu anhu. And there are people from this community who are great in business. There are individuals who used to treat individuals who are sick. They were the doctors at that time. We have that as well. They were the teachers. They were those who were young, those who were old. We are a microcosm. Everything from the Sahaba radiallahu anhum has expanded itself to our society today. So yes, it is not surprising to find that when a group heard this, that they stepped aside. Or they didn't respond right away. Nor is it surprising to hear that a group heard this and they acted. And Sahih Muslim Rasulullah spoke about people who he, he called believers. Those who do jahid uh, biyadi or bilisani, that people who go and they strive or they do a type of jihad with their hands or with their tongue or with their heart. With their heart. And after each description, he mentioned that that person's a believer, that person's a believer, that person's a believer. And unfortunately what's happened today, the lowest part, and then there's another hadith about man ra'a munkara, that whoever sees something that is not, not correct, that he should or she should make the effort to change their hands or with their tongue or feel in their heart, and that's the lowest or weakest of faith. Why I'm bringing this up today is that we've sort of taken that last category and we've created a new one. And that new category are those who just ignore reality. They don't even feel it's wrong anymore. They don't even feel it's wrong anymore. There's a hadith that many of us studied in Zal Talibin, الظلم ظلمات يوم القيامة. On day of judgment, oppression will be layers of oppression. Oppression will be excessive darkness, compiled darkness. Now every time we read this, we have this picture in the day of judgment of one oppression will cause much darkness to uh, encompass a person on the day of judgment. But just the other day when I was sort of preparing for this talk, one thought came to mind. And this thought came to mind based upon the following. There's a couple that I know where the husband was abused when he was young. He was sexually abused when he was young. And in this abuse, he lived in a situation where to speak about this was completely unheard of. And to make mention of this was something completely taboo. Because oftentimes, you have situations where it's the family members themselves who are violating this. And when you get into a narration of Musanif of Imam ibn Abi Shaiba, you'll see that this, is the, this has happened before. So this individual, from what I know, he's abused six or seven other people when he became older. 
He was abused as a child. No one tended to that problem. And I'm not trying to justify his actions. There's no justification of that action at all. But subsequently, a lot of that began to come into him. Because, and I can't explain the psychology behind it, it's something that you have to ask a therapist or a psychologist, I can't explain the psychology behind it. But we see oftentimes those who are victimized, for some reason, some of them, not all of them, we can't put a blanket statement out, but some of them also go and victimize others. And I don't want anyone who's been victimized here to feel like I'm making a blanket statement against you. What you suffered is tragic, and what you suffered should be addressed, and no one can justify what has happened, nor anyone can call you someone who's going to be a future perpetrator. That's not my intent. But this is what happened with him. And after he had victimized six or seven women, who were all from his family, all of them were from his family. I'm not talking about random women. All of them were from his family. And then when they try to speak out, their family began to hush it. No, 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 this is an uncle. We don't talk about uncles. We don't discuss this. So now the family began to tear apart. Because a family member did this, who was likely abused by a family member, he was abused by someone else. And then he began to abuse others. And when they had the bravery and courage to speak up, their family began to shut them up and not let them speak. How will it look? He's your uncle in the end. This is the conversation. And at that point, it made sense to me. That the transgression of this one individual, and I don't know how high up the chain it goes, against this man, that one who transgressed this man, this man is still guilty and accountable for what he did, has resulted in transgressions of his against others. One of those marriages that he transgressed, a woman in that marriage, has ended in divorce. And interestingly enough, in her marriage, her husband was also abused. And they could not function together. So we see that not only sometimes, sometimes it's cyclical, but oftentimes the domino effect that one hits and then there's a whole, there's a set of branches. There's an offshoot of all of these oppressions that occur and it trickles down. And we know that when a wrong occurs, the subsequent results of that wrong will also be brought forth. So on the day of judgment, a zulm, one oppression, zulumat. A person will see the reality of many oppressions having occurred on the day of judgment. And they'll be held accountable for it. In one narration, I'm going to come back to this narration. We see in the Musannif Imam Ibn Abi Shaybi rahmatullahi alayhi that from Nafi' rahmatullahi alayhi he reported that a person was invited into the house. I want to get to this right away. He was invited as a guest. As a fam to the family, he forced himself amongst a woman in that group. There's one situation. I'm sorry, I'm going to be open about some of these situations today. I'm not going to mention names. And they're from different states, in different countries. So don't think this is just, oh, this is somewhere in Lombard. We have to go research this. It's not. There's a sister who, when she was in her teens, the family had invited a guest to the house. He's a family friend. He's a friend of the father's. So that person had complete access to the house. And this happened so many times. 
you know, my Urdu is very limited, but I know a few things here and there. Nay, chalta, chalta. You know, this thing, we can let it go, I can let it happen. Adi, right? No problem. He makes his way upstairs where the girl is. He locks the door in the room and he rapes her. He rapes her. Not just molestation, complete rape. When the girl, now in complete trauma, goes to her mother, her mother shuts her up. It's a family friend, we don't talk about it. Only to find out later, and this is going to be a bit mature, so if you're not comfortable with your children being in here, I don't recommend that this is probably not the best uh, gathering to be in. I mean, it's a good gathering, nothing against any of us sitting here, but the conversation will be mature. Okay, can we put like a rated M sign on the front door just so people don't, rated Muslim. Uh, no, it's mature, the conversation is going to be mature. And she refused to listen to her daughter only to find out that that daughter was raped by this woman's husband's friend who was also cheating, she was cheating on him. Cheating on her husband with a friend. It's not like these things happen in these small little bubbles. You can draw these neat lines around it. So many things come from it. The man was allowed unlimited access in the house. Why? Now we find out that he was, the, he was committing adultery with the woman of the house. Only to betray his own friend in that way and then also rape the daughter of the friend. And the mother disowned the daughter when she went public with this. How can you do this to my lover? There are ramifications that occur when people don't take sharia seriously. Now look, what I am not going to do today is say, sisters, if you have followed hijab properly, none of this would ever happen. That is stupid. That is foolish, that is ignorant, and that is not what we're saying the Sahabiyat did not practice proper hijab. Is that what we're saying? Because that's what we're saying, then this is not where we should be sitting. We should go home and do a lot of tawbah. These things happen, and the victim is, is almost all the time innocent. In some situations, you'll find something where the person might not be innocent, and someone's going to be upset. How can you say that they're not innocent? Well, the reason I say that is because they actually are, it's consensual, but then they claim rape later because of the fact of certain reasons. I don't want to get into these things. So, أَضَافَ أَهْلَ فَاسْتَقْرَهَ مِنْهُمْ that he came to the house, he was invited in. So many of the stories that I might share with you today are stories within the household. Our deen has established the rules of hijab for a reason. An uncle is an uncle if he's the direct relative of the father, i.e. brother, or the brother of the mother. An aunt is an aunt if she's the direct sister of the father or the mother. To extend that because, oh, this is a nice khandan, it's a nuclear family, is, is setting us up for failure, disaster. Because many times, those who have access to these situations in the household are those individuals whom people assume that this person can't do anything wrong. I'm thinking right now of one of the males that came to me, he's older than me, who mentioned when he got abused. And he was abused when a trustworthy individual whom the family connected with took advantage of that situation and then went and uh, continued on to do things to him that should not have been done. So if we're going to take away a practical point, it's not to monger fear or to begin to make us hypersensitive to everything. But it is to say that there are certain preventative measures that deen establishes. Some will be successful and some will not be successful. But at least there's some method of protection. It's almost like saying, well, a burglar can break through the door. Why should we lock the door? No, 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 we lock the door. It's one more measure of prevention.
Now, sometimes it won't be the case, as the situation I'm going to bring up right now, where there was a sister who came to me after having been abused for seven years by her father. By her father. Now, why am I bringing up this case? The reason why I'm bringing up this case is the following. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has established general guidelines. But there's other behind the, beyond those guidelines. I'll give an example. My sisters, they don't wear niqab in front of me, but they still cover their hair in front of me, and they will not wear short sleeves. Now you might say, well, why? They're your sisters in the end. Because the deen has guidelines. But the guidelines are the edge. But then we begin to add more padding as we go into it. For example, if a person prays the fault of prayers, that's sufficient. I don't want to say miss sunnah, but technically the fault is what you have to do. And what it is wajib. But if a person skips out on sunnah, or skips out on coming to the masjid, or does not present between himself and shaitan, padding so shaitan cannot come closer, what happens? The fard will fall quickly. It's much easier for a person who, if, if Asr is going to begin at 4 o'clock, if that person prays 3.55 every day, Dhuhr, just quickly goes and just gets in the 4 o'clock, doesn't pray sunnah or anything else, doesn't make an effort to come to the masjid, it's much easier for that person to fall than that person who comes early and then establishes the sunnah and prays in the masjid. On a very bad day, that person might not come to the masjid, they'll pray the sunnah and everything at home. On a horrible day, maybe that person won't pray the 4 rakah before Dhuhr, but at least pray the 4 rakah of Dhuhr and the 2 rakah after. An extremely horrible day, maybe he'll miss all the sunnah, she'll miss all the sunnah, but it's putting barriers in between. So within our deen, yes, lowering the gaze, not touching the opposite gender from those who are not directly re- related, yes, that's there. But we also see the adab that has been taught by the salaf and the khalaf and the, and the scholars, the ulama today. And one of those things is that we maintain modesty at all levels. We maintain modesty at all levels. Modesty is a branch of faith. And anytime you remove a branch from a tree, there is less fruit, there's less produce, there's less production that will come from it. And when modesty gets removed, Rasulullah mentioned that the that a Nabi from before him had said that if you lose modesty, then do whatever you want. It's a very strong branch. So one of the things that we should establish is this idea of being modest within the household. That the, that the males and females, and the Prophet wasn't told us this when he spoke about commanding towards prayer, that after a certain age that we don't let our children lie under the same blanket. Why? Because they become sexually aware at that point. And when they become aware, things can happen in that capacity. And thus, for example, you see many parents who say after a certain age, the husband will say to the wife or vice versa, that look, our son is a little older. Even my wife told me this. I remember after a certain point when we were still washing our, uh, cleaning our kids, she said, look, he's getting a little older. I shouldn't be cleaning him anymore. It's awkward. Now, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's awkward. It now begins to establish a level of, uh, of distinguishment, of discernment, tamiz within the household. That look, mom is not going to come in anymore. Dad will do it. My son, for example, my nine-year-old, he has full-body eczema. So there's a certain medication he has to have put all over him. When that medication's put, he doesn't ask his mom to do it anymore. There's certain parts of his back, etc. he can't reach. He'll have me come into the room and do it. And even then, he'll make sure that he covers what he can cover, and then I have to take care of the rest. Why? Because it's, a, it's an idea of distinguishing now. Putting into the mind that there is a separation between genders. And that separation has to be established within our household. Now someone might say, well, there's no separation in the workplace, the marketplace, etc. You're right, there's not. So we control what we can control and they leave the rest to Allah.
So anna rajul nadafa ahla baytin fastakraha minhum imra farufi'a thalika ila Abi Bakr. So this was brought to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Fadarabahu wa nafahu wa lam yadrib al-mar'ah. That he punished the person and he banished the person but he did not punish her. Why is this important? So many times within our situations, in our households, etc., the victims are punished. You hear these things. What were you doing with them in the first place? What does that matter? If a woman is alone with me, the imam at the masjid, in my room, she shouldn't be alone, no doubt. But what? Now all accountability for me gets thrown out the window because she's alone with me? If a person happens to be in a situation that's compromised, I'm not saying put yourself in compromised situations. Accountability doesn't fall. See, what we've done is we've begun to identify what was wrong. And yes, if a woman and man are alone, it's wrong. The Prophet doesn't mention, do not, this is ta'kid over here, do not have khalwa between a man and a woman. Yes, no doubt. But if khalwa occurs and more happens, a person can't just say, well, it's khalwa's fault. No, it was your fault. It was my fault. It was the person who aired's fault. And sometimes in these situations, because the victims are so young, they don't understand this. Eight years old, seven years old, nine years old, six years old. They're just given a ride home from Sunday school with their quote-unquote uncle, not their uncle really. And that abuse takes place. The person who they trusted, the person who should teach them, etc. That abuse takes place. It's because we have not established, I can't say that's the only reason. But if we establish the proper uh, barriers and lines, it will help us at least reduce some of these occurrences. I can't say they won't happen. But then we see Abu Bakr he punished her, he, didn't, he punished him, he didn't punish her. Now so many times the victims are made to seem at fault. Well, it was your fault, you should have done this in the first place. Okay, fine. He or she should not have done it in the first place. But, they, but that does not, if I'm in a part of town that sells drugs, and someone sells me drugs, or if I take drugs, we're both accountable for the mistake that we made. So we have to begin to leave that mindset where the victim is now what? Victimized. That victim is made to look guilty. It did not happen. Going back to the previous hadith, Rasulullah, which has been great, it's sahih. Rasulullah wasallam. what did he do? He listened to the oppressed. He heard her out. To the extent that her identification, the male, they went and they took that individual. Now alhamdulillah, Allah Ta'ala had this in such a way where the other individuals stand up and take account. But we see the Prophet wasallam. he listened and he went forth to agree with the, with the victim. Maybe you're wrong, maybe he didn't touch you. Maybe he's just walking, his hand slipped. This is what we hear all the time. Maybe you're just imagining it. Can you imagine the person she or he just had their entire life turned upside down? One of the individuals I had to work with, SubhanAllah, it was a very difficult time when I had to work with this individual. She brought me her, her diary. And she had me read the diary before the incident, after the incident. And being an English teacher, I can tell tone. And you can just see the way the tone changes. Something died that day. Something died that day. You see how she wrote before as an early teenager, and all of a sudden that incident occurs. Death. Something, some part of her died that day. Then she had only a couple more entries, and that was it. That was the end of that. She stopped writing. 
Now you might say, what's the big deal? Just start writing. For someone who writes, you will understand. Because this is a mode of expression. It's a mode of expression. And now when that gets cut off, it's like a person used to be talkative, getting very silent in the household. Now when someone's silent, you say, what's wrong? What's wrong? You were just talking so much the other day. Did something happen? Did I upset you? That's the same thing. Something died in her that day. And so when we see Rasulullah when she said so-and-so did it, he listened to her. He didn't just say, maybe this happened, maybe that happened. Now you might say, well the Prophet wouldn't say that. Look at the case of Ma'az al-Aslami radiallahu anhu. When he said, I committed zina, the Prophet turned away from him. Then another angle, he turned away from him. Four times! Until when four times the testimony took place, it's equivalent to four witnesses. Then he still looked for a way out. Maybe he's drunk. No, there's no scent of alcohol in him. Maybe he's insane. No, he's, he's sane. So the Prophet ﷺ began to take steps to provide excuses there when the individual wronged himself. But in the case where there's a victimized individual, a woman was victim, uh, victimized, he didn't say what? No, 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 maybe you just misunderstood. Maybe it was consensual and you're just lying to me. He didn't say that. He listened to her. Because our Prophet was a Nabi of Rahmah. And he understood the psychology of the world that if you, now there's this interesting book I was reading called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And if you look at it, just what happens to the oppressed is exactly almost a carbon copy of what happens to segments of our ummah. I'm not saying all of our ummah, segments of our ummah. Now, I have to go a little, I have to start going a little quicker because I have about 18 minutes left and I have, I've only covered three out of 24 pages. So I need to go a little quicker. I want to take our attention towards something you might say, well, what's, what's, this, what's this all about? Let's go off topic for a moment. In a, in a hadith in Sahih Muslim, it's a mention that Rasulullah that the Prophet never struck anything with his hand, be it a servant or a woman. The Prophet when he is passing away, in his final breaths, the Prophet ﷺ, he begins to say that um, that الصلاه, الصلاه, that the prayer, the prayer, or that which your hands have been trusted about. Now, yes, this refers to women, but I'm going to get to men shortly. Now, it is not a random woman who's been hurt with this. It's often a sister, or a spouse, or a daughter. And son, brother, that happens as well. Now our Prophet ﷺ, I want you to listen to one particular hadith. And this is, Bab man sabi. That in Sahih Bukhari, we see that the chapter of cutting down the prayer, shortening the prayer, when hearing the, the cries of a child. That from uh, Abdullah bin Qatada, who heard from his father, father Qatada radiallahu anhu anhum jamian, and Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qal, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said the following, Inni la'aqumu fi salah, I was standing in prayer, Uridu an, uh, an uh, utawwila fiha, I wanted to elongate it, 
There was an interaction, an experience with his Lord, with our Lord that was taking place, and this beloved experience wanted Rasulullah to expand his prayer. That there was such a moment of love and ecstasy and focus in prayer, the Prophet was enjoying, he wanted to expand his prayer. And in that, pro- in that, pro- in that process, فَأَسْمَعُ بُكَ الصَّبِي At that point, I heard the crying of a child. Future imams, listen to this. So many times I go to the masjid, the child's crying his head off. Crying her head off. And what happens? The imam is reciting, reciting, probably putting a hand to his ear and now doing this and just completely enjoying himself. And after prayer, sisters, brothers, watch your children in the masjid. Of course we should watch our children in the masjid. There's no doubt about that. I come from Zambia where they don't even let anyone under the age of eight into the masjid. There are seven into the masjid. They, they don't even let them into the masjid. But that's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about the one who has control is not controlling. And the one who has no control that person is being left to be held accountable, the two-year-old, the one-year-old. Maybe there's a circumstance. Now look at the Prophet ﷺ. فَأَتَجَوَّزُوا فِي صَلَاتِي كَرَاهِيَةَ أَنْ أَشُقَّ عَلَىٰ أُمِّي Now the Prophet ﷺ in this situation, when he hears the child crying, that in this circumstance, in this situation, what does he do? He cuts his prayer short. He cuts his prayer short out of concern for dis- uh, troubling the mother of that child. The Prophet ﷺ was willing to cut short his conversation with Allah Ta'ala for the sake of a child. But when our children, this is, here's the child, this is how much he loved children. The greatest interaction between Ab and Allah. He cuts that short. But we're not willing to speak a word Against what? A family member when a person has been completely victimized and there's proof. If there's no proof, I understand. I'm going to get to that when I get to the part of Husn al-Dhan. But when there's proof and there's evidence, still no, no, don't say anything. This is the sick backward thinking we've come to. There's a person who, one of the situations that were brought to me, that, that his son is serving time in jail for abusing uh, a person in the community. I'm not saying this community, in, the, in that community. So when that father began to speak with me, I sort of was saying, you know, I'm really sorry to hear what's happening. He said, why? I'm the one who turned my child in. I'm like, you turned your child in? He said, yes, I turned my child in. My child wronged a minor. I'm not letting him get away with that. And at that po- moment, that verse made sense. There's two verses. But what do we see? Even against whom? Yourselves or? Or your parents? Or? Or your family? This is what Islam asks from us. Not that all of a sudden we say what? No, no, they're family. They're Qadri, my last name. They're Qadri, you can't say anything. That is a type of asabiyah. That you're going to stand up for the oppressor over the oppressed? When our Prophet said what? That we help the oppressor and the oppressed. We stop the oppressor and his or her oppression. And the oppressed, we help them out as well. And so, in this circumstance, where the Prophet was so caring for children, our Prophet there's a, there's a hadith in Ibn Majah that we see um, Ibn Abbas that the Prophet mentioned 
That if anyone has a female child, doesn't bury her alive, doesn't d- d- disgrace her, and doesn't prefer her uh, with the male children over her, what happens? Allah will put that person to paradise. Our Prophet is saying not to prefer one child over the other, not to disgrace our women, not to bury them alive in what's happening in our community. The woman is being buried in accusations. She's being buried in self-guilt. She's being buried in self-consciousness. Maybe I did something wrong. What did she do wrong? Nothing. But we bury them. Then we disgrace her. That, this is why women say, well, our, our, our testimony, our voice isn't heard. Of course it's not heard. Because you have, not you, but in our community, this begins to happen. And more women are abused than men statistically. Because the abuse rates for women have climbed from about 25 to 33%, where for men, there's still about 16 to 18, 16 to 20%. So there's still less with the men being the victims. But our Prophet mentioned what? Enter that person to paradise. But what do we do? We prefer random strangers. Oh, I grew up with that person. How can I turn against that person? Your own daughter? Your own son? That this is, and what does a child think? I'm nothing. Our children are being affected. This is what the Prophet he's cutting short his prayer. He's promising paradise for people who take their children seriously. For people who take their children seriously. I mentioned his last advice when he is passing away is take care of your women. Take care of your women. So we have to see who is the victim. This is the future of our deen. This is the future of our world. And what? We just hope to close our ears and close our eyes and maybe cover our mouths and all of a sudden, maybe this will all pass. Oh, just get married, you'll forget about it. Okay, I'll tell you about marriage. One sister, who my wife and I, well, she was helping her, I was sort of involved in the situation. She was getting married and she was an abuse victim. So we're trying to explain to her that this is something, you have to get therapy for this. Because this will carry over to the marriage. And the woman just wasn't understanding. So finally my wife began to walk closer until she was right in her face. And the woman began to push her away. And she kept coming closer. And she kept pushing her away. She said, this is how your husband will be with you. He's going to come this close. If you're panicking now, if you're getting flashbacks of what, have, what has happened, and you have not worked through this, the marriage will fall apart. And indeed, marriages have fallen apart. Poor wife, poor husband who've been abused. What is their fault in the entire process where all of a sudden they physically can't function anymore? They freeze in certain circumstances, almost like a paralysis that occurs. Their mind begins to panic. They see visions of what happened in the past when their actual beloved, their spouse is in front of them. So when we stay silent, zulumat, these are oppressions upon oppressions that occur. Then the children grow up seeing what? Mom and dad don't even sleep in the same room. Mom and dad never talk to one another. Anytime dad comes close, mom pushes away. But on television, on the internet, and in the streets, etc., everyone else's parents are close. Not knowing what's happening, the psychology of the oppressed at that moment. So when we stay quiet and these things occur, and you may be saying, well, they don't happen. They happen very often. They happen very often. And this is what we have to open our eyes to, that this happens very, very often. To the extent that there was a point in time in my life where not one month was passing where a case like this was not brought to me. There was a year or so in my life where not one month had passed where a case like this was happening. And I'm only 36, 
Some of you are older, you might be saying that much more than that happens. There's a brother I was speaking to the other day who used to live in a country, uh, he's an Indo-Pak brother, he used to live in a different, uh, ethnically different country, I don't want to mention which country. And he said because the Indo-Paks are treated a bit subpar there, he said myself and my friends would always get abused. We'd be walking to school, they'd grab us into the cars, they'd pull us to the sides and make us do things that we're not comfortable doing. This happens very often. And Alhamdulillah, his mother handled it, handled it well. And so he felt comfort, but he was able to forget about it and move on. But other people, it doesn't happen to them. For other people, it doesn't happen to them. Okay. <clears throat> I'm, I'm trying to uh, hurry up because I know we don't have much time. <clears throat> so then the question comes, well, Brother Saad, we have circumstances where men and women have to be alone with children. Class, rides, etc. <clears throat> this is something that I want to talk about. That I'm going to just watch my words closely. The first thing is that we need female scholarship. We need, I don't know how many daughters or wives or women are here, but we need women to study. Alhamdulillah, this year, uh, one of my sisters, I have two sisters, they're both studying. One of them, she's finishing her Sahih Bukhari year, and my mother's finishing her Sahih Bukhari year. So it doesn't mean it has to happen right when they're 10, 12 years old. It can happen throughout your life. We need scholarship to be brought, revived in the women. Because there are certain things in certain circumstances that historically have been problematic across the genders and across religions. So let's step away from Muslims for a moment. I'm sure many of you, and if you just search this, you'll find so many examples, have heard about junior, junior high school, not just talking about high school, junior high school teachers who had relationships with their students. People have heard this before. In my own high school, my AP US history teacher and my chemistry teacher slash wrestling coach were both guilty and kicked out of school for this that they had relationships with the students. And they were both married. When a circumstance is created where men and women are now interacting, that becomes a very frightening, tempting fruit that's out there. So we need women to begin to study. And that studying has to take place such that they can now devote their lives to children. The makatib need women, the madaris need women. It feels very uncomfortable as an imam for a sister to come in. And she needs to talk. And I say, okay, well, if you're going to talk, come to my home. My wife needs to be there. No, no, this is really private. She can't hear it. Well, I have a personal rule. If my wife can't hear it, I can't hear it. And I'll get into personal rules shortly. But it gets very, it gets very difficult. Now, alhamdulillah, my wife is a scholar. And so what happens is I often send them to her. And then she and I talk about it. But if the women are not there and the men are put in that position then unfortunately, there may be a violation of khalwa. There may be a violation of proper hijab. I'm not accusing men nor women. What I'm saying is when a circumstance presents itself, and if the greatest generation, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, slipped, because if you study about uh, Ma'iz al-Aslami, who comes right after him with the narration? Imra'at al-Ghamidiyah, she comes right after him, right? She comes right after, it literally comes right after. And she says to the Prophet, when he's turning her away, are you going to do the same thing you did to, to, to Ma'iz, to me? Is that what's going to happen? Because I'm pregnant. 
I can't avoid this. But if the greatest generation slipped, radiallahu anhum jami'an, then we can also slip. We can also slip. So we need women's scholarship. We need women who are going to be able to teach other women. Now this doesn't mean same gender abuse doesn't occur. It occurs with the men and the women. But I'm going to get into that uh, shortly as well. So then parents say, well, where can we send our kids? There's a few things that we have to look out for. One thing is to identify when is the circumstance going to be that my child will be alone or others will be with that child. Now, I spoke about conversations earlier on that you need to educate your children about being touched improperly. But that type of reality has to be there. That This is not a one-on-one class. This is not a class where no one's present in the building. If you find in the, in, in the madrasa, for example, there's three or four classes in one area. Okay, it's, now it's populated. There's, there's a defense mechanism. Maybe there's recording cameras that are running for security purposes. There's a defense mechanism. Why? Because now that person's being held to account. And that accountability is absolutely necessary. Because non-Muslims slip and Muslims slip. Now for the teachers, and the, and the soon-to-be teachers, and all of us uh, who are not teachers as well, we have to begin purifying ourselves. Now people might say, well, the people who purify themselves, they also slip. That's true. But just because some defense mechanisms haven't worked for some, doesn't mean they're not going to work for everyone. The Sawuf Dazkiyah Ilm Al-Ihsan is something that's getting a bad name as of late. I want to mention something. And that is that when you look at the Sawuf Dazkiyah Ilm Al-Ihsan, in the time of the Sahaba, do you see many ahadith, many of them about doing this type of word and this type of dhikr? No, I mean, you do see that. It's definitely there, but not the way that we sometimes purport it. The early tasawwuf in Tazkiyah was focused upon what act? Anyone? Self-affirmation. Through which particular method? Dhikr came a little... I mean, it was with it, but it sort of gained more importance later. Muraqabah was there as well. There's fikr as well. But something else was a natural presence within the Sahaba. Sorry? The Hajjid, so that lends to it. Mujahida. It's Mujahida. Zuhd and Mujahida. The nature of the nafs is that the nafs feeds upon what is most available to it. If the nafs is always given whatever it wants, it begins to have an... Look, you have a child. Let's say you have a five-year-old child. And you want to spoil that child. What do we do? Why, do? why do parents hate when kids go to the grandparents? Because they give them whatever they want. Everything you've done becomes undone. I mean, we love it, but at the same time, it sort of bothers us. Everything gets undone. Child asks for candy, like, no, no, no candy for a parent. Just give it. You know? This is what my parents like. My daughter's like, Coke, Coke. I'm like, we don't keep Coke in our house. We don't keep beverages in our house like that. And my mom's like, just give it to her. I'm like, it's not even dinner. Just give it to her. Like, yeah, what are you supposed to say no to your mom? So I'm like, okay, fine. I'm not, you win today, but wait till you get home. I'm joking. Um, so the, the idea is that, you know, if you want to spoil a child, you give, give, give. That child feels that whatever he or she says, he or she can get. The nafs is the same way. If you keep giving, 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 giving to the nafs, then it feels it gets whatever it wants. Dhikr is a good way to combat it. But the Sahaba, Zuhd and Mujahidah were, were very clear methods of suppressing the nafs. When the nafs gets suppressed by eating less, drinking less, speaking less, all these different types of things, standing up at night, fasting regularly, now the nafs gets suppressed, then it's like that child who sort of knows they're going to get a no, they don't make that effort. The nafs, when it gets that no, 
it gets that no again, it gets shrunken more and more and more. Then subsequently what happens when it makes, it, when the opportunity presents itself, it doesn't race towards it. Why? It's been crushed, it's been subdued. So many of us, alhamdulillah, we follow this type of path of some type of dhikr. But include the mujahada. Because after the Prophet was given the verse of ilm, Allah Ta'ala did not go straight to the verse of da'wah. What came in between? The verse of mujahida. In my, and I've asked, if you're from Milwaukee, don't ask this question. Did the Prophet used to fast on Mondays? Yes, it's in hadith, clear. But did he fast on Tuesdays? Did he fast on Tuesdays? In some narrations, yes. But Wednesdays? Yeah, in a couple narrations. But Thursdays, Thursdays we know for sure. But Fridays we know the Prophet did not. Actually, he did fast, it's in hadith. But Saturdays, Yom Sab, the day of the Jews, did the Prophet fast that day? Yeah, he fasted that day. Did he fast Sundays? Why? Yes, we take some days more than others, but he fasted in different times all seven days. In the verses that were revealed after Surah uh, Alaq, Surah Muzammil, Allah Ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhal Muzammil, oh you wrapped up. What does Allah Ta'ala say? Qum, stand. Stand when? In the night. Qum al-layla illa qalila. Stand for the night except for part of it. Then what does he say next? Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Half of it. And then after that? And after, okay, half of it. The afternoon, then what? Or decrease or? Or increase. So why in hadith do we find that the Prophet sometimes fasts certain days, some hadith, he would fast until we thought he would never break his fast. In some narrations, he would not fast until we thought he would never fast again. And now in the verses, stand up most of the night, part of the night, half the night. Why all of this? My contention, this is my contention, is that based upon the dua of the Prophet the لَا تَكِنِّ إِلَىٰ نَفْسِ Do not leave me to my nafs, the most pure of all nafus, right? For even the blink of one eye. That was his dua. That the nafs, you have to keep it off, off balance. If you're always praying half the night, sometimes it's, I, I met some brothers who fast 20, 25 days a month. And they say, after all, it gets easy. It just gets easy. Like, you know, we're just sort of used to it. We don't even do suhoor anymore. It's just sort of easy. And for some of those guys, I tell them, okay, decrease to five days a month. Okay, decrease to two days a month. Now increase to 10 days. Oh, it's getting hard. Yeah, because when you get the nafs used to one thing, it just becomes used to it. The Prophet would always leave the nafs off balance. He wouldn't always throw a cross. Sometimes it would be a jab. Sometimes it would be a... You understand what I mean? The nafs would be beaten in different ways so he can, the nafs never gets comfortable. It was a, a lesson to us. So zuhud has to be there. Mujahada has to be there along with the dhikr. We have to learn to train ourselves. Because a lot of people just do only dhikr nowadays. You ask a person, how much do you fast? Brother, I fast a lot. No, outside Ramadan, no, I don't want to talk about it. It doesn't happen. We're not used to it. Forget fasting. The Prophet told Aisha when she was looking for food, that just eat once and spend the rest of your time in worship. It's mujahada, so we don't get used to seeking more. This, will this prevent abuse? No, it will not prevent abuse. But it will at least train some people's nafs to be able to become restricted when necessary. I've gone, we said till 9.20, right? Or that, 9 o'clock, right? And then till 9.20 is the question answer. Okay, I'm gonna have to stop. So I've covered five pages. <sighs> okay, I'm gonna stop over here and we'll take question and answer. I, I'm sorry I didn't get through everything. I was really hoping to be able to get through everything today. 
So what I'll do is we'll get to questions, I mean, as questions are coming up, I just want to mention the following, just some takeaway points. The first takeaway point is the following. The, do not ever blame the oppressed, the victim. It's not the victim's fault. Please get that clear. Secondly, never assume that no one, a person can't be called out due to status or position. If the Sahaba radiallahu anhum slipped in certain ways, like that Sahabi, and I mentioned the hadith of Tirmidhi, was a Sahabi in the end, then what do we see? We see that others can also slip. We see that others can also slip. Okay. The next thing is what? Apply whatever is capable in your own power. And what is that? If you're going to send your child to maktab or madrasa, a female should be teaching the child if it's a girl, a male should be teaching the child if it's a male. If there's not female teachers, as the case in many, in many situations, then what happens? Find one that practices hijab properly. If they're in a different room and they're being taught through some sort of audio uh, uh, relay, then, okay, there's not that, that same fear isn't there. Whereas if they're sitting in front of the teacher, which it shouldn't happen that way. And that's how you just have an audio relay and then the, and the PowerPoint, right? Yes, so the, the, the video is restricted to the PowerPoint and the audio is related. I mean, so it's different entrances, different rooms, etc. So what did I mention? Um, and the next thing is that what? Speak to your children. Let them know this is a reality. And constantly speak to them. Begin to become aware of behavioral patterns that change. Child is talkative, doesn't want to be talkative anymore. Child no longer wants to go to a certain person's house anymore. Child is really unwilling to go to a certain uh, institution or, or class, etc. These patterns of change, they are, uh, you know, a sign is sufficient for the wise. They, they become um, means by which we can identify what's happened. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. We have this complex where, oh, she'll never get married. Alhamdulillah. They get married. But what happens is they get married, they never dealt through this, and then divorce occurs, or other problems occur. We shouldn't say, oh, she'll never get married. First of all, marriage is not the all end. Allah is the end. Allah is the goal. But a person, then what happens is that, you know, that, that, that avenue has been shut, and then that person can't function. And they often lose their relationship with Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. The whole question comes, why, why, why? Now, as I'm waiting for questions to pop up, they haven't popped up yet, I'm going to go to this idea of husn al-dhan. Because one of the questions that happens that to occur regularly is this idea that, okay, but who am I supposed to believe, her or him? He said he didn't do it, she said she did it. Islamically, initially you believe both. Initially, Islamically, you believe both. Initially, you believe both. Does everyone understand that? It doesn't have to be one way or the other. If there's no proof yet, and she's making a claim and he's on the defense. You believe both. Oh, I can't be disloyal to my friend. Believe, you don't have to go tell him, hey, I believe her and you. He talks to you, you can say, look, you know, how the Prophet was Aisha, when the accusation occurred. He was very open. Oh, Aisha, if even a thought came to your heart, do tell about Allah, forgive you. This is his wife, radiallahu anha. Aisha, radiallahu anha. The Prophet was open. If a thought came, but he was still supportive of her. So if someone comes with an accusation, don't shut that person down. Listen to the accusa accusation, and then now those in charge should now begin to start investigation. 
Do you need four witnesses to go into an accusation that's not considered rape or considered um, intercourse, etc.? That's not how our deen works. Rape is not the same as consensual intercourse. And molestation is not the same as intercourse. It's different. It's different. The punishment will be different. Everything is different. So we shouldn't all of a sudden make like a type of qiyas that's like, you know, ma'al farag, that, 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 uh, how would you translate that? Yeah, so a legal analysis that's not, that's not coherent, that's unacceptable. So we shouldn't go about it that way. So believe both individuals. Rasulullah Allah Ta'ala has mentioned that, um, Stay away from most type of suspicions. But at the same time, we have to take up the cause, especially leaders. So take them to the proper people. No one's coming with questions. Alhamdulillah, we're going to be ending soon. It's cool with me because I was actually sort of uncomfortable taking questions about this. But Mufti Saab sort of said, Are you sure you're not going to take questions? And I know what that meant. So, Rasulullah um, has mentioned that to be, to be careful of, of suspicion, it's the worst of speech. But at the same time, we don't disregard it. We have to do diligence to identify if something went wrong. And we believe the victim in the process. We don't just throw her or him out. We believe that person in the process. If there's irrefutable evidence that something happened, then we don't just say, well, this is a very prominent figure for the sake of deen. What do you mean for the sake of deen? So the deen of some people is important, the deen of others is not important? Oh, this person has many students. Okay, fine, the person has students. Isn't she a human being? Isn't he a human being, the one who's being oppressed? So for the sake of their deen, we, I'm, I'm not saying throw deen out the window. Saying accountability is accountability. If a worker is a good worker, but he messes up, she messes up in one place, they don't just say, oh, you know, in general they're a good. I'm sorry, we have to get rid of you. So yes, we protect deen. Yes, we don't want fitin to come in. But we don't, these victims, what do we do for them? So these conversations have to be had. No, no, no questions are coming. I saw, I saw the tablet. There's, I got, there's about 15, 20 questions. That, those are your personal questions. No. They're asking you. No, no, 15, 20 questions. I don't know why you turn on this. Both sides of the There's a lot of them. Mm. Yeah, I'll show you from here. Okay, cool. Is this the here? same thing? Or? There's a lot of questions here. Man, this is me and technology. Whatever happened to having written questions? Can the top of the Islamic point of view of marital rape be discussed? It can't be discussed in too much detail due to time, but the following has to be understood. Don't misunderstand the hadith. Of, well, I was looking at some explanation about this hadith as well. About if a woman says no to her husband, that all of a sudden the angels will curse her all night. The ulama speak about context quite a bit. And context is very, very important. Context is extremely important. So first, yeah, I'll read out the okay, okay. Uh, I'll just do this one, then I'll do the three that are here. I'll go, and then I'll move forward and shall with those questions. Do you want to get a chair? I feel bad. This is like a cue for one of you guys to go get like a chair for your teacher. No, I'm not. Someone moved. So that hadith, I forgot which sharh I was reading this in, but oftentimes women would use intercourse as a chip, as a bargaining chip. And the hope is that if the husband agrees to certain things, then he will... Then, then, then they'll be intimate. Okay? You have to keep propriety, especially in the masjid. 
So when a woman is using this as a bargaining chip, then yes, this hadith is very applicable. That be careful, a person, she will be cursed until dawn. But the Prophet ﷺ, nothing about him would have supported marital rape. No way. We see the Prophet ﷺ came to a woman who was betrothed to him for marriage. I forget which book, was this in Nasa'i? Where he went in and then uh, she said, you know, I seek protection from Allah. I think it's something to say, I don't remember right now. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. So a woman came, the Prophet was, a, a, a community gave her a woman in marriage. And so he came to her and she said, I fear Allah. You know, I seek protection of Allah. And so the Prophet left her. He left her. And that marriage did not occur. Now, when you study the hadith, some of the ulama, they say that actually, uh, the ummah, some of the ummah Hasan played a joke on her. They were trying to say, oh, the Prophet loves if you play hard to get. So they were trying to play, she was trying to play hard to get. But that's not the point. The point is when she showed, this is not an interest for me, the Prophet did not continue. So he did not continue. He stepped away. And this is how we have to view it. Our unhealthy sexual relationships in our marriage is very detrimental to our community. It's very, very unhealthy. People, and look, women, I'm not saying anything against you because I'm actually a firm believer that there's two sunnas. I'm a firm believer there's two sunnas of, of, of one marriage and multiple marriages. And the reason for this is that the Prophet in, in, his, in the time of his 23 years of nubuwa, of, of being a prophet, he was married as... Uh, as um, a monogamous relationship from the age of 40 to about 52 so that's 12 years then from the age of 54 to about 63 about 10 years he was in a polygamous relationship and I feel the Prophet did this why? to show those who are in a monogamous community this is how marriages should work and those who are in polygamous communities this is how marriages should work that's why even the youth, the prime of his life, he did not take, this is the understanding I have of this. Again, this is my understanding. This could be from my tafarudat. That, that, that's fine. But in the end, it's my understanding of it. And I'm being very open with that. The Prophet ﷺ, he lived as an example for everyone, not just polygamous relationships or monogamous relationships. But I do have to be open about one thing. From what I spoke to my wife when she deals with sisters, without mentioning sisters' names to me, she doesn't tell me the sisters. There seems to be a difference of how men and women look at marital relationships, the intimacy. And thus, many men, they wish that they can have polygamous relationships. Why? When one wife is not available, another wife would be available. Now, that sounds bad, available. But you also have to understand the following. Men are very romantic, but men also have this desire. And I can't speak on behalf of women because I'm not a woman. Now women are saying, well, it's not true about we're the same way. Maybe it is the same way. I don't know. I've never been a woman. I don't have any plans about it right now. <laughs> Men, I spoke to a scholar, an older scholar. He said he's dealt with this relationship, this problem a lot. He said for men, sometimes intimacy is like, it's like a need. It's not just a want. It's a need. Almost like eating, etc. Or, or, or I know, it's, it's, I don't want to debase it. And then it is a carnal desire. It's like you know, you have to use the restroom, you have to eat. You have there's these needs that you have on Maslow's hierarchy. Love, romance, intimacy is one thing, but just the sexual part of it is another thing. So there's a senior mufti who's talking about this. He said a lot of women because they're not men, they don't understand that psychology of it. 
So I'm not blaming the women. Don't, don't take it that way. I'm not saying men should then go and take advantage of their wives in whatever way. I'm not saying that. Don't get me wrong. But I think sometimes women don't hear this, and they need to hear that for men, it's, this is why a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of husbands I hear about what happens. The wife says, you know, he has a pornography problem, which is another thing we need to avoid if we want to stop this thing. Um, and then in that, in that situation, uh, but when you speak to the couple, the guy says, and again, it's not the wife's fault. I'm not trying to blame one person. Well, she's not there for me. She's tired from work, etc. And I want to understand, but I need something. And again, it's not acceptable, but I'm just telling you the conversations that come up. So marital rape is Islamically inappropriate. It's incorrect. It's incorrect. It's sinful according to a few scholars that I spoke to. And I would assume that's the, that's the majority of the ulama. That's my opinion on it as well. It's sinful. And we see no example of it from the Prophet wasallam. That being the case, please develop healthy, intimate relationships. Be open in your conversations. Don't expect things to be how Hollywood or Bollywood or Gollywood or Lollywood, I don't know what these names are, make it seem. It's a very human interaction. So keep it in that level and have, be open about it. Molestation of women in Masjid al-Haram, others say, oh, this is a key point. This hashtag Me Too became hashtag Mosque Me Too. And what did Muslims say? Don't say, don't tell people this. Why not tell people this? Okay, I'm not saying go tell the world that we have sick perverts walking through the haram. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, it helped me out because when Allah Ta'ala blessed my wife and I to go to Hajj 10 years ago, when I did tawaf, the women can't see this, but I told my wife, you're going to stand right in front of my chest and I'm going to keep my arms, and you see these, mashallah, you know, I keep my arms around her and I kept my elbows out. And some people didn't like it who were walking next to me. But I didn't touch her, but I had my arms around her like this, and I walked this way the entire way. Why? Because someone informed me that there are people with perverted minds that come there, and they take advantage of it. So I benefited from open conversation. So uh, molestation of women anywhere, the mosque, masjid haram, anywhere is not permissible. Especially in these areas, ittaqillah. Have taqwa of Allah Ta'ala. Fear Allah. And if you feel... If you feel this might overtake you, and I'm not calling out any individual here, but if you feel this might overtake you, go speak to someone. I remember when I used to teach maktab to children, that one day, and I'm going to be open about this, I had this thought that maybe, you know, I can do something. I'm, I'm telling you, open in the masjid. No one's ever heard me say this before. And this is online. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you openly. That thought came to mind. It's shaitan. I said, A'udhu Billah. And I contacted the parents. I said, from today on, I'm not going to teach your kids in the masjid unless you're here with them. Or, I come to your home and you sit in the same room that we're teaching them. It's a thought that came to mind. Did it, did it happen again after that? Alhamdulillah, never. Did it happen before that? Alhamdulillah, never. But I'm being open with you that one time the thought came up. So I cut class and I went and I, I called the parents. I said, no, from now on you have to be somewhere. Because there's only two kids I was dealing with and they were very young. They were like five and six years old. One might even be here today. He might be like, oh great, this is awkward. But no, the thought came, shaitan puts it in. It wasn't, I wasn't thinking about this. I wasn't planning this. Shaitan puts it in the mind. And if someone is not trained, and I'm not trained, but Allah blessed me at that moment to recognize it was a satanic whisper, the, the khawatir of shaitan, then that person might act upon it. So we have to avoid this by not setting up the opportunity there. But at the same time, the perpetrators have to be careful. Look, day of judgment, bros. Sisters, brothers, sisters. It's a scary day. We got enough issues to worry about. Then these people coming back. Now look, imagine the Prophet sees us and we want to drink out of his hand. And he said, you did this to my ummah? I would cut my prayers short so that child's mother would not suffer? 
I cut my conversation down with Allah, so that child's mother did not suffer. But you made a mother of my ummah suffer by abusing her son or daughter? Can you imagine? What will we say on that day? What will we say? There's 30 questions. Email me. If a woman or girls abuse a family member, that is mahram. Is that mahram still considered mahram? Or are they now non-mahram and is hijab now compulsory upon the female? <sighs> Nothing is going to take away the... Um, that's an iftar question. I'm going to give it to the mufti. Yeah, definitely. Definitely hijab becomes part of the yeah. yeah, so nothing is in... Father, the own father also. Okay, so mufti sahab says clear that it's going to be... Hijab is going to be compulsory. Oh, if a woman or girl is abused by a family member that is mahram, is that mahram still considered a mahram or are they now a non-mahram? And is hijab now compulsory upon the female? Mufti sahab said hijab is now compulsory upon the female. Yeah, even khalwat the father would be haram. The khalwat the father would be haram, okay. Yeah, Being so alone with that father... That even to cover the face at that point in front of the father is necessary. And in the, the situation I deal with, dealt with that, that woman who's unfortunately I had to send her father to jail. I was involved in the process. I have no regrets. I have no regrets. How should a person who's already on the way to abuse stop that path? This is a very good question. This is a question that I can't answer publicly because every situation is different. But the first thing is seek help. You'd be surprised. Ulama and mashayikh, the majority if not all of them, they're not judgmental. Because they recognize the 101 faults they have in themselves. So they're not going to say, oh, what is this stuff for Allah? I just showed you an incident that happened with me. These things happen. So if you're on that path, contact someone, a local scholar, someone you trust, a therapist, and begin to seek help. And begin to establish those boundaries. And not interact in a way and that will become, uh, will lead to something even worse. And I can only answer in that short way, but um, my number is with the, with the school here. You can contact me. I would recommend you take advantage of the ulama and mashayikh in this facility as well. What should we do for the wrongly accused? First of all, make dua for the, the, the one who grants the, accuse, uh, the, 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 the accusation and the one who's accused. Make dua for the, those individuals. The one who's wrongfully accused, technically in sharia, they have to now go and clear that person's name. If it's not cleared, then you should make an effort to clear that person's name. But don't jump to the conclusion about accusation before things are settled. You can defend the person, say, I know this person to be a pious person. I don't know knowledge about this particular situation. This person's always been a pious person. I'm making dua that Allah Ta'ala takes him through this fitna, takes her out of this fitna, etc. What, what can you do for a victim who is now an adult, but was abused as a child but refuses to get help? You have, I think this is one of the things you have to force help upon that person. Doesn't mean you have to take her to a therapist. But show love and show a willingness to help. Make dua for that person and slowly break that person down to eventually, look, I met one, subhanAllah, victim of abuse. She actually wrote a letter to her abuser and forgave that abuser. So the healing process can go a very long way. And she makes dua for that person now and asks Allah to take that out of his heart. The healing process can go a very long way if it's handled properly. So... I would say to continuously be the support for that individual and try to slowly get that person to recognize help and make dua for that person. There's really nothing outside of you. You can't force therapy. If you try to force therapy, it's not going to work. People don't open up often. Sometimes they do. How is the modesty between father-in-law and daughter-in-law? Technically, they can't marry. But at the same time, a person has to recognize the following. And look, I'm going to say this in the most appropriate way possible. Rasulullah mentioned that the brother-in-law is, I'm talking about brother-in-law for a moment, the brother-in-law is deaf. And often we see brother-in-laws are treated like brothers. I don't know why. 
if there's two sisters and one gets married and the other one could be married or not and she has a brother-in-law she has a brother-in-law now likely those sisters look similar the one who married she might have had a child maybe gained some weight after childbirth and the other one might not have if that brother-in-law and sister-in-law are openly communicating or for example a woman has a husband who has a brother so I'll, you know like for example and I'm not putting anything wrong with this statement I just want to compare my brother and, 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 and me for a moment my brother is 6 foot 1 I'm 5 foot 6 my brother alhamdulillah has no I don't see any pimple marks on him I have all these pimple scars I've lost my hair he's kept his hair I'm chunky he's thin he has a better recitation than I do. He is definitely more muttaqi than I am. He, a lot of, he makes more money than I do. There's a lot of things going his way. Now, the relationship between my brother, I'm very strict. My, 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 my wife knows. She, will not, she's, she just knows that there can't be a salam or anything. That this, I'm, I'm strict. I'm very strict. And my brother knows that as well. So that's, that's cool. But imagine a situation like this where there's not that strictness. Then husband and wife get in a fight. Shaitan comes in. Brother-in-law begins to console. It's not a big deal. Now she notices the, the, the similar qualities that attracted her and him, and he notices as well. And at the same time, she notices the beneficial differences. Hamul mawt. Brother-in-law is death. Now that's brother-in-law. Father-in-law technically, technically is, you can't marry the father-in-law. But having said that, that doesn't take away the potential for harm. So if there's a woman who's married, so first of all, I recommend when women and men get married that they live away from the parents for a year or so. Because sometimes the wife likes to dress up for the husband and that makes it very awkward in the house. There's one scenario I remember very clear that the mother-in-law went to the daughter-in-law and said, stop dressing this way around my husband. Now, she wasn't talking about her son, but she said, my husband's in the house and he's seen you. And there's some years between us now. Don't dress this way around my husband. And so the father-in-law should be treated, yes, as a type of father. But at the same time, apply the adab there. So what does that mean? That means circumstantially it's sort of different. I can't make a blanket statement. But what you want to do, you want to recognize that he's still a human being, just like anyone's a human being. And although he has no ill intentions or ill lust, I'm not saying that any of that is there. At the same time, don't compromise yourselves. That's what I'll say right now. You can talk to me in particular. How to help the oppressor. You stop them in their oppression. That's the hadith. So if there's someone who, uh, for example, does these things, you tell that person, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. And Allah has veiled you to this point. But imagine if he exposes to the world. We need to get you to help, help you to stop. If this person is serial in his or her oppression, then now the community needs to know. Because what happens when people go to that person, they will also become compromised. The community should become aware. I'm not saying backbite. I'm not saying backbite, but at the same time, you should not allow the community to become uh, compromised under that situation. And I have very specific examples I can give. I don't want to give them openly right now because they might not be applicable. But be smart about it. You should tell that person that we need to stop and we need to do X, Y, and Z to fix this. If not, I'm going to go public with this because people have been affected. I've had three or four victims come to me about you and we need to, make it, we need to stop this. Is it permissible to disown a relative that has abused members of the family? I mean, you can never really disown Islamically. You might have to cut off communications. Um, if there's a reason to cut off communications, and Mufti Sahib, correct me if I'm wrong, but if there's a reason to do so, then they should do so. Yeah, if there's a reason for it. I don't want to make someone, I don't know what I just did, I touched something. There we go, okay. Um, to cut them off, then you cut them off. And that's it. And don't say, oh, well, they're good people. 
And they might be good people, but they made a serious mistake. And now there is a sense of accountability. I'm not trying to break up families, but at least hold the person accountable. At least tell the person, we know what you did. And now my daughter's not coming, my son's not coming to your house anymore alone. No sleepovers at your place, etc. How can one contact the sheikh's wife to talk about some masail? If you're talking about my wife, then um, you can um, contact Dar Salaam. They have her email address. They have my email address. So you can contact Dar Salaam and we'll get you in touch with her, inshallah. So she's a therapist. She's also a scholar. Would it be appropriate to confront one's abuser to find peace? <sighs> Some therapists do take it to that point to confront them. I, I just recommend confronting through written... Uh, Speak to your therapist and your scholar who's helping you through this. Circumstances are different. Circumstances are different. I don't want to put someone in harm's way in any way. So um, I know a person who did, but she did it through letter because she didn't want to compromise herself or get any flashbacks. So she wrote a letter and she forgave the person. That was forgive, forgiveness. I know one person who, who, who um, confronted her abuser through her mother, told her mother, and her mother actually took the case up. I know one person who confronted the abuser through a different circumstance, that there was a wedding, and then she told the family member that I don't want these individuals involved, or else I'm not coming to the wedding. Why not? Because he did this and this to me. And so they, they, they sort of respected that position as well, and so the, the message was sent across. Suppose a relative or friend does abuse and it's confirmed. How do I keep my relationship uh, uh, with the friend or business with the abuser? In our deen, we hate the kufr, we don't hate the kafir. We hate the kufr, we don't hate the kafir. So we hate the disbelief inside the person, but we don't hate the disbelief. So when someone's doing something wrong, we hate their act, we don't hate them. Because it's very hard to guide someone who, who is, uh, that you hate. So if you know someone who's doing this wrong, I would set some guidelines. Personally, I would say that, look, I understand that you've made mistakes. I want to help you on the path of recovery and leaving this and the path to piety. And use that as your connection with that person. And constantly use your friendship as a crutch to improve that person so they leave this action and no longer harm people. Aside from that, it's situation by situation. If your son is going to mother's of her heads, how do you speak to your child about abuse without lessening your child's respect for his teacher and the possibility maybe that's there? So what I would do, is I would, I, what I did in, uh, is I sat my children down and I gave a very broad thing. I said, if anyone, family, friends, madrasa, maktab, anywhere, touches you between your navel and knees, right away you tell us. This became a little problematic because one son would kick the other son in the rear end and they'd come, oh, he touched me in that area. But at least I knew that they got the message. So I made a broad explanation. Oh, the, the, repeat. If your son is going to madrasa for hivs, how do you speak to your child about abuse without lessening your child's respect for his teacher and the possibility that maybe it's the, uh, the, 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 and the possibility of it being there? So I would say grant a general uh, warning and, and, and conversation to your children that these things do happen and it could be any people I don't want you to, to judge and assume people will do to you but at the same time take these steps try not to be alone with someone of the opposite gender try not to be alone with someone very old you know there's a story and I, I couldn't find the confirmation of this that Imam Muhammad when Imam uh, Muhammad al-Shaybani began to study with him because he was younger and in men, before we go through puberty, especially when facial hair grows in, we have a lot of feminine characteristics. Uh, the, the boy before puberty, the body is sort of slender like a woman as well. And so um, the story, again, I couldn't find the, 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 the citation for this, and there's a reason I'm mentioning this. 
Imam Abu Hanif would not let him sit in front of him. He had to sit to the side. Then one day when the sun cast a shadow and he saw that there was hair growing from the child in the face, then he said, you can sit in front of me. Now, why am I mentioning this if I don't know the citation? The reason I'm mentioning this is the fact that people have quoted this today, even without knowing the citation, shows that people are conscious of the potential between having a young child and a teacher in the same room without having the proper mechanisms to avoid any issue. What other reason would we mention the story? That story is mentioned in so many gatherings because people have recognized that this is an issue. This is an issue. Even if, it, let's say the story is made up, we don't know. But I, I don't want to mention a story that's made up. So in most cases, if I heard a story like this, I would not mention it. But I'm mentioning it because I heard it from so many different people as a warning to me that when I become a teacher, that if the Salaf or even the current ulama cares so much about this potential wrong interaction, that they say stories like this, I should also keep that in my forefront. So go ahead, speak to your child openly. If anyone at public school, private school, Islamic school, on the basketball courts, in the, in the, in the, in the locker rooms, etc., if they say something inappropriate or look at you in a way that makes you question their intentions or ask you to come in their car or come over in a way that's not appropriate or touch you in, 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 in ways that, you know, not a handshake, etc., then you let us know right away, no matter what threat they put. And I told my kids, especially if they're threatening you, that's a sign that what they're doing is wrong. Islamically, what is considered evidence for sexual assault is the victim's accusation sufficient Should they cut ties if they are family. I cut it, cover the cut, cut ties part. Um, considera consideration for evidence of sexual assault, I've spoken to a few different ulama about this. So it's not like you need four victims, but Islamically, we have to protect both individuals. One who could be wrongly accused, that has to be protected. And definitely the victim has to be protected. So in those situations, I would say you go to a mufti. What I've done in these situations, I've taken the case to a mufti or someone who works in a Darul Qadha type, uh, type institution, and I've run down that situation with them. And I usually go to two or three different people uh, who can help me, because if sometimes one person just says no, but three or four say no, no, this is definitely enough evidence. And then that, with that council of ulama, I'm able to come to that conclusion. But I can't tell you right off the top of my head. But sometimes there's key things there. Um, the victim's accusation, if, if this collaborative evidence, for example, multiple people are stepping on. Now you might say, well, multiple people might be making up. That's true. This is why Islamically, there has to be checks and balances that are there. But um, look, it's haram to touch a person of the opposite gender, right? And so in that way, anything for us Islamically is in some way sexually inappropriate. So at least that much should be addressed that the person touched me. Intent or no intent, the person was not supposed to touch me. And, that, and that's sufficient for me to move forward, at least with some concern. Why another Sahabi who didn't commit the rape and was not accused of the woman take the blame? Okay. I may not have explained this properly. The woman, when this happened to her, she went, once the muhajirun helped her, and was brought to the Prophet she said, this man committed this heinous act against me. When they were taking that man for punishment, another Sahabi stood up and said, no, Messenger Allah, it was me. That man's innocent. And the point of that is to show the Prophet took the woman's word seriously. The woman did not identify the man correctly. It was an incorrect identification. The one who stood up second was actually the correct wrongdoer. He was the wrongdoer. And he was rightfully punished for his, for his, uh, for his transgression. 
But one of the points I wanted to make there is not that we should take justice into our own hands. That wasn't my point. My point was, look, the Prophet was careful to take the woman's word very seriously. So in such situation, it should be brought up to someone who can do something, especially someone who can do something, and let that person now take the proper steps. To have your father, there's this case, I didn't read as much about it, my wife showed me a video on her phone, this, na, na, is it Nasser or Nasser? This, this, this uh, person from Michigan, he was involved in um, mistreating, abusing women, uh, hundreds of women. So my wife showed me this clip about um, in the courtroom, like a father stood up in front of the judge and said, I just have one request. Give me five minutes alone with that man. And the judge said, you know I can't do that for you. He said, okay, fine. Give me one minute alone for that, with, with that man. Just one minute in the room alone. Just need one minute. She said, you know, as much as I want to, I can't, I can't let you do that. And he said, well, I'm sorry, I'm going to do it anyway. And he, he attacked the, 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 the abuser. And then he was tackled. But if you just look at it, people are crying, people are yelling. Look at the damage that caused. Look at the damage that caused. So we have to recognize all that uh, psychologically, physically, emotionally, socially just being destroyed by these transgressions. So in such a case... It's best to take it to someone who can do something and not just have some sort of family militia come in and, and I think family should step up for the child or for the, for, the, for the victim, but not just go do something because then now what if there's a legal case taken against that person that this person came attack me and the family could be in shambles. Yes, that momentary revenge will not have the long-term longitudinal benefits that a person is seeking. So I hope I, 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 said, I, I explained that properly. Are we done? Are we out of time? Okay, I can address that. So what do we say about the recent scholars or speakers who are accused? That's a tough question. Um, so I'm not going to mention any names in this process. But... That's a very good question. So why do other scholars sweep it under the rug? Why do other scholars not address the issue? So one of the things that we're seeing here tonight is this institution is addressing the issue. So inshallah, by the bravery of one person or one group, others will become brave as well. The hashtag MeToo movement began with a brave individual and it became a good type of contagious result. Ulama scholars are supposed to be the protectors of the community. But there's, there's also humanity there. And sometimes it's very difficult to, dis, to, to discern between the two. So the person might have a friend who was accused or a teacher that was accused. And that person might be going through his or her own turmoil. She or he, whoever the scholar is, might be thinking, now... For example, when some of these things came out, I remember my wife became very frightened when she heard me say this, and I had to tell her, look, it's just a statement. When I heard some of the things, I remember I told her that, look, if this is happening to some of the people in the world today, what hope is it for us when we graduate? What hope is it for me? And she gave me this strange look. I'm like, look, I'm not saying anything. But the idea is that I fear for myself as well now. So should the ulama stand up? The ulama have to answer in a way in which they take the complete community's interest at heart. So they should definitely defend and take up this, the, the, the case of the oppressed, especially if it's within their community. 
Should they go out and call out one scholar per se? It depends there as well. If a situation is such that that scholar has done this once, years ago, and it's clear that person was remorseful and never did it again, then I think some people would say that you still should not avoid, uh, you should never encourage people to go to that person, but maybe it doesn't have to become made public. You see what I'm saying here? That that person did it once, it was a transgression, never did it again, and this was like 25 years ago, and ever since then has sort of never, never came back to that according to everyone. Then I would still never, I would still be very careful about encouraging someone. I personally would not encourage someone to go to that person anymore. But I, would, I might not expose that person's name. Whereas someone is doing it regularly, even if it was in the past, then I might be more willing. If someone comes and asks me directly about the situation, I'm thinking about studying there, what do you think? I might, or studying with that person or taking bail with that person, what do you think? At that point, I would say, look, I, 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 I don't know about you, but I would not send my daughter there. I would not send my son there because of these reasons. I would not have him or, him or her go listen to this scholar or this, take bail with this sheikh, etc. Then someone would say, well, why don't you just come out and have a blog post? This is where a council of scholars have to sit together. A council of scholars, because there is the right of every person to have the name protected until things are proven guilty. After that point, a council of scholars have to figure out what to do. And I think this is the stage that we're at. We have some of these famous speakers. Um, I spoke to some scholars who contacted me about certain speakers. And I asked them, so what's the next step? They said, now we're sort of waiting for the next legal steps that are taking place, and we might have to make a statement. Okay. I know in the past there's been a petition that was signed against certain individuals. Okay, so these are some types of ways. But I think it's just really, some people, when you study under someone or you take benefit under someone, it gets, the, the lines get uh, gray. And it's not an excuse. I'm telling you right now, it's not an excuse. But it's the fault of being human. So while it doesn't ex excuse it, I hope it at least explains it. Now you, the person who asked might say, that's not an acceptable answer. And I told you in the beginning, there'll be things I say that are not acceptable, that you don't like. This, you contact me and say, look, brother, this is not the right way to look at it. You should consider it this way. And then those conversations hopefully will help me revise my position if necessary and enlighten me to take the right steps. How should you address the issue when the father is abusive of my wife and doesn't give my wife or his own wife a voice? His say is absolute. I think over here this is not referring to sexual abuse. This is referring to other types of abuse. In those situations, I guess, long answer. When the father is abusive of the wife or of the mother, in the past what I've done is I've recommended the children, the sons in that situation, this is about a son now, to go speak to community members to whom the father will listen. If the child speaks up, the father is not going to listen. He's just going to be like, you're a child, what do you, what do you know? If that's not working, then I encourage the, the child and the wife to now have space. In one case, the mother even moved in with the child and the wife. And the father is now overseas. It had to be done because there's a certain psychological and emotional abuses that were occurring. It, it says in hadith that if you hide and don't talk about someone's wrongdoing, the day of judgment, Allah will hide your sins. So if someone commits a sin abuse, do you hide or make it public? When there is something that I am doing wrong that affects only me, then and you see it, you hide it. And Allah will hide your sins in the Day of Judgment. When there's something I am doing that's going to affect others and you see it, 
you should inform the party members that need to know. So for example, I am someone who you see is a bit of, uh, the Prophet Sallallahu in the situation when it was, um, was it Fatima bint Qais radiallahu anha? It was it Fatima bint Qais radiallahu anha uh, when, the, when two men came to her, Muawiyah radiallahu anhu and um, another Sahabi, and she, after her idda had expired, and then she asked the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, what do you think? And he said, so-and-so, he doesn't put down his stick. Okay, okay. So, in one case, we see the Prophet ﷺ, he saw when a person's personal mannerisms did affect others. So, when Fatima bin Qais came to the Prophet ﷺ with this concern, because she wanted to get married, one of the two proposals that came, about one of them, he mentioned, be careful, he's someone whose stick always stays in his hand. Now, would, in general, would we consider that backbiting if someone just said it randomly to someone else? Yes. But in this case, it was going to affect her in her marriage. So, he said, don't be careful about accepting that type of proposal. Because if you do, he's going to be abusive and dominant upon you. So sometimes you need to say it. So it's sort of, you have to see the, the general benefit. I would go to ulama and revise what I'm going to do before I do it. I don't like when people just go on social, I hate social media. I really hate it. I think it's very problematic. Um, I would revise these things in front of the ulama, sit down and say, this is what's going on. I want to do X, Y, and Z. What do you think? And take their opinion, do istikhara, and then take the next steps. We're done, right? Okay. I remember one thing. Uh, I think we're done. Okay. So it's 9:45. I still got to get back to Milwaukee. And I'm still working. I'm not off yet. So um, after du'a, I'm giving a general salam to everyone. Okay, and I'm making my way to the door because I have to pick up four kids from my parents' place. I don't know what they've done to it, and then I have to pack them up and take them back to. Omar, are you coming with me? So five kids I have to take back. <laughs> The, the dentist child as well, so I have to, um, I have to bounce, so I, I, I seek forgiveness uh, from all of you. <coughs> Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala Ali Sayyidina Muhammad al-Barak wa Rabbana zhulamna anfusana wa illam taghfil lana wa tarhamna lanakunanna mal khasirin. Allahumma ati nufusana taqwaha wa zakkiha anta khayru man zakkaha. أنت وليها ومولاها يا مقلب القلوب ثبت قلوبنا على دينك يا مصرف القلوب صرف قلوبنا على طاعتك يا مؤلف القلوب ألف بيننا وبين قلوبنا يا أرحم الراحمين يا أرحم الراحمين يا أرحم الراحمين أنت رب المستضعفين وأنت ربنا لا إله إلا أنت سبحانك إنا كنا من الظالمين ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسن وقنا عذاب النار ربنا اغفر لنا وارحمنا ربنا اغفر لنا وارحمنا ربنا اغفر لنا وارحمنا اللهم احدنا وحدي بنا اللهم احدنا وحدي بنا اللهم احدنا وحدي بنا اللهم أنت ربنا لا إله إلا أنت خلقتنا خلقتنا ونحن عبادك ونحن على أحدك وعدك مستطعنا نعوذ بك من شر ما صنعنا نبوء لك بنعمتك علينا ونبوء بذنوبنا فاغفر لنا فإنه لا يغفر الذنوب إلا أنت Oh Allah, verily a group of your servants have gathered this evening, Ya Allah to gain guidance in an area that's very cloudy If this was the great time of the Prophet there would have been so much clarity tonight, Ya Allah but we leave just as confused as we've come in Oh Allah, that is the fault of the speaker Oh Allah, forgive me for this, Ya Allah But Oh Allah, illuminate the hearts of all the listeners Online and in person Those who intended to come And those who were unable to come, Ya Allah By giving them guidance and clarity, Ya Allah 
O Allah, we ask it, Allah, that we are not in the time of the Prophet We are not able to open our eyes and see him sitting in front of us. We're not able to hear his words. So, O Allah, we ask, Ya Allah, that you let him come in our dreams, Ya Allah, and that we're visited by him in our dreams, Ya Allah. And on the day he judged me, let us drink from the hands, his hands at the hold of Kawthar, Ya Allah. O oh Allah, O oh Allah, O oh Allah, you gave us tawfiq to come to your home. You invited us into your home, Ya Allah. O oh Allah, in this world, when someone abuses or wrongs someone, they never invite that person to their home. O oh Allah, we have wronged you, Ya Allah. We have sinned against you, Ya Allah. And you are so merciful. You've opened your doors to us. You allowed us to stand in front of, in front of you in Isha and converse with you, Ya Allah. O oh Allah, you put us in a gathering. When we leave, the angels will bring our names to you and you'll forgive our sins, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah, this is your great bounty, Ya Allah. This is your being kareem, Ya Allah. So, oh Allah, we ask, Ya Allah, that you continuously shower upon us your bounty, Ya Allah. Continuously shower upon us your guidance, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, you made us from the Ummah of the Prophet them when we did not deserve to be guided, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, let these be signs that in the day of judgment you will also forgive us and put us into al-firdaus in your hisab, Ya Allah. Allahumma inna nas'aluka hisaban yasira. Allahumma inna nas'aluka hisaban yasira. Allahumma inna nas'aluka hisaban yasira. Allahumma inna nas'aluka jannata firdausi bi ghayri hisab. Wa na'udhu bika min al-nar. Allahumma inna nas'aluka hubbak wa hubba rasulik wa hubba man yuhibbak wa hubba amlin yuqarribuna ilayk. Oh Allah, now the become in a now the Allah, now the become in a now, Allahumma jinnam in a now, Allahumma jinnam in a now, Allahumma jinnam in a now. Oh Allah, we ask, Ya Allah, that these perverted desires that have crept into us, Ya Allah, into our communities, Ya Allah, oh Allah, remove them from us, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, take care of all of our tazkiyah, Ya Allah, cleanse it from us, Ya Allah, cleanse it from us, Ya Allah, cleanse it from us, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, remove it from us, Ya Allah, such, Ya Allah, that we can have purity of heart, Ya Allah. All the different mechanisms and ways that you've allowed us to have some protection in this world, Ya Allah, through the Sharia, oh Allah, let us be able to apply those with complete, uh, in such completion, Ya Allah, that, that, that it draws your happiness upon us, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, the victims in our community, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, give them strength, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, give them strength, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, give them strength, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, some victims, Ya Allah, they've left Islam, Ya Allah. Bring them back, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, this is the greatest victimization, Ya Allah, to push someone from Islam, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, their modesty was violated and now their deen has been compromised, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, guide them back to Islam, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, give us tawfiq, Ya Allah, to help those who have been victimized and oppressed, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, let us listen to them, Ya Allah. Let us take them seriously, Ya Allah. Allah, oh Allah, if we're not able to do anything else, let us make dua for them, Ya Allah. Let us make dua for them, Ya Allah. Let us make dua for them, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, if any of these evil thoughts ever enter into our hearts, Ya Allah, purge them from our hearts, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, if any of us are the predators or the oppressors or the wrongdoers, Ya Allah, guide us away from it and forgive us, Ya Allah. And oh Allah, oh Allah, take any harm that may have been caused by our hands away from those victims, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah, heal those who have been victimized, Ya Allah, and heal those, Ya Allah. Allah, who are the oppressors, Ya Allah, by stopping them in their oppression, Ya Allah. O Allah, grant strength in the, to the ulama and the leaders and the institutions, Ya Allah, to address these topics such that the community sees that they, that they actually care about the general public, Ya Allah. O Allah, bless this institution that took upon themselves this mantle despite the fact that it was very controversial, Ya Allah. O Allah, the, this masjid could suffer financially and in, in its popularity, Ya Allah, because of this, Ya Allah. So, O Allah, we ask, Ya Allah, that this 
this was kanima of haq, ya Allah. This was kanima of haq, ya Allah. And this was a great jihad, ya Allah, for the administration and for the students and for the institution to be able to even host such an event, ya Allah. Oh Allah, grant them strength to be the forefront in all goodness, ya Allah. Allah, take care of all their financial needs, ya Allah. Take care of all their expansion, ya Allah. Provide for them students and teachers, ya Allah, who draw into this gathering your barakah, ya Allah, and who cause your pleasure to descend upon this institution, ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that you forgive all of us our sins, ya Allah. Forgive us all for our sins, those that we've done and we've forgotten, those that we've done and we're audacious enough to do it publicly, ya Allah. Those that, ya Allah, we're embarrassed about, those that we are not embarrassed about, ya Allah. Forgive us, ya Allah. And not only forgive us, ya Allah, turn them into good deeds, ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that you protect us from any punishment in the grave, from the fitna of the jal, from the from the, from the fitna that arises at the time of death, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask, Ya Allah, that you help guide us to be able to educate and teach our children to avoid those things that will compromise their love for you, their confidence in themselves, any type of protection, any type of innocence being compromised, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that you give us strength when we have these conversations, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that you give strength to the victims to come forward and to be able to have these issues addressed so they can now begin to recover, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that you give strength to the therapists and the scholars and the leaders who will have to address these issues, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that we never use terminology or statements that make people feel isolated or to feel marginalized by the statements that we make, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah, we ask, Ya Allah, that you make us guided on your straight path in the way, Ya Allah, that we emulate the sunnah of your Prophet completely to the T, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that you raise us in his company, Ya Allah, that you grant us his, 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 his his companionship and his neighboring us in Al-Firdaus, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, anyone who's passed away, Ya Allah, we ask that you forgive them, Ya Allah. Anyone from this community who's passed away, from the Muslim woman that's passed away, forgive them, Ya Allah. Anyone who's sick, Ya Allah, cure them. Anyone who's financially suffering, Ya Allah, grant them wealth through which they're able to have halal means and give abundant sadaqah and zakah and take care of their own needs, Ya Allah. Anyone who's gone through psychological, emotional trauma, Oh Allah, help them, Ya Allah. Anyone having marital issues, Ya Allah, join them together, Ya Allah, and heal those issues. Anyone having familial problems, Ya Allah, solve it for them, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, any issues that may exist that I may not have mentioned, Ya Allah, solve it, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, there have been many requests for du'as, Ya Allah. There have been many, many requests for du'as, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that every request for du'as is accepted, Ya Allah. That those who are ill, those who are going through difficulty, that you remove it from them. Those who need something, that you grant it for them. Those who have passed away, that you forgive them. Oh Allah, the time is short and the list is long, Ya Allah. So whatever is halal and tayyib within our hearts, whatever pleases you, whatever your Prophet sought from you or sought protection in you from Ya Allah, one of the Salaf al-Salihin, the Anbiya, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum jameean, wa alayhim wa salatu wa salam, ask from you Ya Allah that you grant it for us as well. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala khayri khanqihi Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in bah. Okay everyone, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.